This is an ABC podcast. The world of work is rapidly changing and the one job for life is no longer an option. But what about many jobs simultaneously? I'm Lisa Leong and today on This Work in Life, we dig into not just how to make this happen, but why we must. Meet Dory Clark. For a long time, ever since I started my career and was laid off as a journalist and had to, you know, somehow figure out how to how to swim and how to support myself when I lost all my income, I really became obsessed with the question of how do you mitigate risk and simultaneously, as much as possible, capture upside opportunities. And so during COVID, something that became very clear to me is something that I had been thinking about and writing about for a long time, which is the importance of having a portfolio career where you actually are earning revenue from multiple things and multiple streams, because that's, I think, is the only way to really build in true security in a world where we can't predict what's going to happen next. As a consultant, communication coach, keynote speaker, blogger, lecturer, and best-selling author, Dory certainly walks the talk of the portfolio career. I asked her what happened to her businesses when COVID hit in 2020. Every year, on average, I speak 40 or 50 times, and most of that was flying, traveling around. Uh, in fact, in 2015, my high watermark was 74 talks that year. Uh, I ultimately decided that was a little too many, so I, I scaled back from there. But still, I was on the road, uh, you know, at, at least three times a month, flying around nationally and internationally. And when COVID uh, happened, all of that suddenly collapsed. And it was hundreds of thousands of dollars over the course of the year that suddenly really just felt like they were going up in smoke. And so how did having a portfolio career help in that moment? Well, one of the interesting things is that starting a few years prior, in fact, often uh, inspired by being on the road and giving so many talks, and no matter how you're feeling or how you're doing, you have to do it. I gave an entire three-city speaking tour a few years ago in Slovakia when I had this horrible flu, and it really made me realize if I ever got sick in a more substantive way or just for whatever reason wasn't able to travel, that would really imperil my income. So something I started experimenting with in 2014, just at first in small ways on the side and then doing a little bit more and a little bit more was online courses. And specifically, I was doing it because I wanted to have a hedge against illness or just getting tired of life on the road. But it turns out one of the most interesting aspects of creating multiple revenue streams and having a portfolio career is that oftentimes if you are preparing for one possible eventuality, it actually can sometimes protect you against multiple ones. I certainly did not think there was going to be a pandemic. I mean, who would imagine that, you know, this once in a century type thing. But it turns out that the effect of a pandemic is almost the exact same thing as if I had gotten sick and wasn't able to, to travel, um, except in this case, the whole world wasn't traveling. Online learning boomed, and it, it turns out that because I had been investing for several years and building up an effort in that area and had a lot of uh, products and courses available, fortunately, I feel very lucky given the context, but my income actually dramatically increased in 2020 as a result of those small investments I had been making since 2014. So come on, we, we said on LinkedIn that we would share how much your revenue increased during COVID. So what are the numbers, Dory? 
year over year between 2019 and, and 2020, I was actually able to increase my my revenues by uh, over 760,000 US dollars. So it, it, it turned out that investing early on in building the portfolio career actually was a, was a good move. And it's certainly something that I would encourage a lot of other people to think about as well. Can we go deeper on this concept of portfolio career to truly define what it is and make it clear for everyone? Yeah, absolutely. So when I started my career, you know, after after I finished graduate school, I was a reporter. And, you know, like like a lot of people, probably like most people, I had a job. <laughs> it was a full-time job. That is where I got my revenue from. And the thing about having a full-time job is it is great until it isn't, because I had this this job that I liked and I thought, oh, well, I'm going to be a journalist forever. And then one day I, I just very unceremoniously got called into the HR person's office and got laid off. And I had to be out of there within an hour, you know, packing my desk. They gave, they were generous souls. They gave me a week's severance pay. Uh, I had already worked Monday. So technically it was four days of severance <laughs> pay. And they just kicked me out into the world and said, all right, well, you figure it out. That would have been bad enough, but it turns out it was, uh, it, it was in the US, it was September 10th, 2001. So of course, uh, keen observers will note that the next day we had the biggest terrorist attack ever on US soil. So it was a really bad time. Time to be looking for a job and unemployed. And it seared into me the importance of just having more options for yourself. Because if you go, if you have one job and then you suddenly go to zero jobs, you're in a very precarious position. Let's now meet someone who also started out in journalism and moved to embrace a portfolio career. I'm Madeleine Grummet and I'm the founder of Future Amp and Girl World, two education technology startups here in Victoria. Uh, and I also do some investment across the early stage startup ecosystem. I think the idea of a portfolio career, sometimes people think it's just doing a little bit of this and that and it's really bouncing around in freelance world. And to me, that's not what a portfolio career is. I mean, it, a portfolio career is really where you have um, a number of jobs and all of that really adds up to being a full career. So, in my case, it really means I've got a number of different jobs in my companies, in my investment sphere, and then in other media work that I do. And then all together, they all are complementary, but they all end up being a full week for me. I'm the mother of four daughters. I'm juggling a family and work. And I found when I've gone and worked in traditional structures or in corporate gigs that the work really, pre-COVID anyway, really wasn't flexible enough. And I didn't feel I could work to my skill set or to my value set well enough in those environments. So for me, a portfolio career allows me to work to my interest areas, to my skills, my strengths, and on problems I really want to solve. And it means that I can really feel like I'm having an impact day to day by working across areas where I know I can really bring my true value to. And Dory agrees. It's not that you have to do a, a huge number of different things, right? I'm certainly not saying, oh, well, you have to be a lawyer and you have to be a, you know, a swim instructor and you have to be a horse breeder, right? Like those are completely different things. They're completely different skill sets, different audiences. Any of them could take a lifetime to master. Really at a fundamental level, what I am talking about is finding ways to take the things that you're already good at and come up with different ways to be able to offer it. So, one example, maybe you work inside of com a company, maybe you're an HR person or, you, you know, you do talent development or something like that. And so taking the time to develop a little side business where, okay, you have your day job, you're happy with it. It's great. It's amazing. But if 
even, you know, once a week, you help somebody for an hour or two with their resume, you're earning a little bit of money on the side. That's fantastic. And it gives you skills and experience and a little bit of extra revenue so that God forbid, if ever you lose your job or you need to, you have something that you've been building that you can pivot into and it gives you optionality, which I would argue in the modern business world is the most important thing we can have. I've been experimenting with a portfolio career for the past two years. I'm a consultant, keynote speaker, broadcaster, and soon to be author. I love it, but I do find switching not just between tasks, but between jobs really quite tiring at times if I don't schedule things properly. Now let's meet another convert. My name's Darren Milo. I run my own consultancy firm. With that, I cover a range of different menu topics from coaching, workshop development, from strategy development and implementation. I also work into other consulting firms and and help them you know, deliver services to their clients. The cons are very much if people turn the taps off, then you know, the projects stop. You have to continue to feed the funnel, feed your pipeline of opportunities. Thankfully, the taps have been turned on again. There's a lot more confidence in the marketplace and people are actually starting to to invest in and do projects. And that leads to some of the pros. It's about being able to focus on really things that you enjoy. One of the best things about having this portfolio is I can really narrow down and work on the key areas that I love and the key areas that brings me a lot of enjoyment And a lot of that is about helping people and coaching is one aspect, be it partners or executives or even in my community involvement with coaching young young girls to play cricket. It gives me great joy. Dory, how many different revenue streams do you need to sustain yourself? What I typically counsel people is think about developing one new revenue stream for yourself per year. And, you know, just as one example in my book, Entrepreneurial You, I tell the story of a guy named Pat Flynn who worked in an architecture firm in 2008. Now, 2008 was a terrible time for architecture firms because of of the Great Recession. He ended up getting laid off, which normally would have been a terrible thing. He was about to get married. You know, it was really stressful. But he had actually been doing something on the side. He had been studying for an architecture exam, and he had put basically all his study notes up on a website, basically just to help him learn the material better. But he figured, oh, maybe this could help other people. So his website actually became kind of popular. And he said, you know, I wonder if instead of reading these individual blog posts, I wonder if anyone would be interested in buying it as an ebook, like if I just put it all together. So he did. He put it all together. He sold it for 30 bucks a piece for this ebook. And it turned out that within a couple of months, he was actually making more money from selling his ebook than he was from the job of the architecture firm. So that when he got laid off, it wasn't a big deal. And that's what I want for everyone is just to not feel the fear to not have to worry, oh my God, what if I lose my job? What would happen? I don't want anyone to have to f- feel like things are so precarious the way that I did when I lost my job as a, as a reporter. The more options you have and the more income streams you have, the less you have to feel that fear. You write that it's important to become a recognized expert. How? Fundamentally, 
over the past decade of really studying this question, what I've come to understand is there are three key factors involved in becoming a recognized expert in your field. And it involves creating your own content, uh, you know, writing or speeches or whatever, so people know what your ideas are. Social proof, meaning are you telegraphing your credibility to other people? Do people understand at a glance that you are worth paying attention to? And number three is your network, because you know, you can be the most talented person in the world, but if no one's ever heard of you, if you don't have any friends, if no one's saying, oh, you have to check out Lisa, she's amazing, your message is not going to spread very far. So you do these things. And the reason it matters so much is that at a fundamental level, if you are a recognized expert, people are always going to be willing to pay more to work with you because the, the number one thing that buyers hate is uncertainty. It is so stressful if someone's making an investment, especially especially a significant investment. They don't want someone where it's like, gee, I'm, you know, I might be spending 50 grand, but I don't know if it's going to work. <laughs> I mean, what a terrible feeling. So you want to hire someone where even if it's a little bit more expensive, it's like, like, you know what? I don't care because I know I'm going to get that result. I know it's going to work and I am paying for the certainty. And if you can make yourself that provider where people are seeking you out, where they say, you know, oh, I really hope I can get to work with Dory or I hope I can get to work with Lisa. You have so much more leverage in terms of what you're able to charge. And it's a better experience for you and it's a better experience for them. Let's go deeper on social proof. Why is it so important? And well, what is social proof, Dory? Yes. So social proof is essentially, it's, it's your way of showing people that you're worth listening to, right? It is, it is your marker of external credibility. And the reason that this is so important to think about and to focus on is that as we all know intuitively, we live in a busy world, right? People are very busy. They're running around. They're worried about, you know, understandably, they're worried about their own issues and they just don't have time to vet things that carefully. And so the very best way that we can attain social proof is basically to align ourselves with trusted brand names that people already know and respect. If I know that Lisa Leong works for ABC Radio, guess what? I've heard of that. That's a thing. She's got to be pretty good if she is working for them. Uh, you know, if, if Lisa just was like operating out of her basement, well, I don't know. She could be great. She could be terrible. I guess I'd have to listen to all her episodes to find out. And I don't have time for that. So it's really great if you're able to, to, you know, be mentioning and sort of putting forward in your LinkedIn profile or whatever. Um, you know, what are, have you had clients that are brand names that people have heard of? Have you been quoted? in publications? Are you for, have you worked for uh, different places? Do you have degrees like a PhD or a JD or an MBA that people have heard of? Um, are you involved in professional associations? Even better, are you an officer in a professional association? Those things count. And Madeleine Grummet says this way of managing your career takes discipline. The main lessons I've learned along the way are that whilst there's fantastic flexibility in a portfolio career because your diary is your own for the most part and that gives you independence um, to create your career on your own terms and manage your time with family needs or other personal interest. That the cost of that freedom is that you do need to be very disciplined. So, I have a number of practices that I do day to day around embedding batches of time for deep work or batches of time for meetings or batches of time for resting and relaxation because, of course, with a portfolio career, your to-do list is never done and so, 
show, whilst that gives you a lot of variety and there's not much monotony in your day-to-day work, it is important that you manage your time. So one of the things I would say to people who are looking at potentially stepping out into a portfolio career is to really think about what sort of practices they have in place, what are the pros and cons, Uh, talk to lots of people who are working in portfolio careers to really understand what that variety and flexibility looks like and how you might need to manage that with different roles, time involvements and different income sources. How much time does it truly take though? When I was reading Entrepreneur You, I mean, I was quite exhausted even just reading it. (laughs) (laughs) The truth comes out. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, oh, this is a lot of work. (laughs) Yes. Well, it can be, of course. And I mean, mean, obviously, um, you can spend huge amounts of time if you want cultivating a side income stream. I mean, you know, the sky's the limit if you have plenty of time. But in a practical sense, what I like to really think about is we have to pace ourselves and we have to kind of think in waves, right? So wave one actually isn't even necessarily quote unquote doing anything. Wave one is learning. If you take two two hours a week and you say, you know what, for the next three months, I'm going to learn about what it might take to start a side business. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, spend uh, a couple hours a week reading books, learning about possibilities, about starting a business or how this might work. Maybe you sign up for an online course so that you're actually schooling yourself and immersing it so that you can make smarter moves when it's time for you to make moves. I think that's very worthwhile. And then, you know, once you've sort of done some learning, then it's time to do some experiments. You say, you know what? I could probably do some coaching. All right. Maybe I I will have two clients and I'll coach them each for an hour a week and I'll do that for a couple of months and I'll see how it goes. And if they like it, they can give me a testimonial. Okay, you know, right now it's it's not for money. I'm seeing if I like it. And then, hey, I've got some testimonials. That means that, you know, testimonials, again, are a form of social proof. And so it becomes easier for you to get clients moving forward. So you pace yourself. But even if you only have a couple hours a week, you absolutely can do this. Just don't expect results tomorrow. Understand that it's something you are building incrementally through your time investments. Even two or three hours per week, we can all squeeze that out around the margins if we need to, to build something that's yours. And it may not be incredibly lucrative in a month or six months or a year, but if you do it consistently over time, what you are doing is you are building yourself options that give you opportunities in a proactive sense and help you play defense so that, you know, if you ever need to, you have something there that you can count on. Dory Clark, author of Entrepreneurial You. And that interview was recorded as part of Pause Fest 2021. Last week, you might have heard our program about the power of using humour at work. Well, since we recorded that show last year with Naomi Bagdonis and Jennifer Alka from Stanford Graduate School of Business, there's been some new Australian research from Dr. David Cheng. He's from ANU and he joins me now. Hi, David. Hi, Lisa. Great to be with you. Now, you've been researching humour for a long time. Tell me what you were looking for in this particular study, David. We were looking at whether humour can help you when you experience stress um, from work-life conflict, which I think is pretty important given that um, we're now heading back into the office post-COVID. Right. And what did you find? Well, basically, we found that humour generally can be helpful. Um, so when you experience humour during work-life conflict, it can reduce your uh, your stress. But it also depends upon where that humour is coming from. 
So if the humor is something that you're, you're seeking, maybe you've gone out to look at your TikTok feed or, you know, Facebook yeah. or whatever it might be, then it can be helpful. But if it comes from your colleagues, it may not actually help you with reducing your stress. It may actually increase the stress that you experience when you have work-life conflict. And did you look into why that was? What we found was when it was your colleagues or co-workers who were making the jokes, it increased your stress because for a lot of people, they were actually looking for some other form of support from their colleagues first. So maybe they're looking for their colleagues to maybe step in and actually help them do some work or take that important meeting that might be after hours or before hours or whatever it might be. And so if you are a colleague, how do you choose your moment um, and mitigate that risk of the humour having the wrong effect, a negative effect? Yeah, totally. So I think there's two things you need to consider. First is who you are in reference to the person experiencing the work-life conflict. So if you're their good friend, if you're very supportive of them normally, it may be okay. But if you're just sort of a colleague who, I won't say you're their enemy necessarily, but you're not necessarily their best friend, you may want to be thinking about whether it's, you know, very helpful for you to be doing it, um, especially if you're their boss as well. And the reason for that goes to the second thing, which is, have you offered them other forms of help first? So if they're experiencing difficulty with managing their work and their life, um, and you're the person just sort of sitting next to them and you could be helping out, or at least they think you could be helping out, and you're cracking jokes, that's probably not going to be so helpful. But if you've offered them as much help as you can and there's really nothing else you can do and you're, you know, you're their good friend or they know that you're generally a supportive person, then maybe cracking that joke may be helpful. David, in previous research, you've looked into the relationship between humour and persistence. Tell me about that. Yeah, so we've looked at um, human resilience and we found, um, at least in the workplace anyway, it can also be helpful. Um, so we ran a lot of studies where we got people to do various jobs. Some were really, really boring, like do maths questions longhand. Um, some were seemingly, you know, useful, but we deliberately designed it so it wasn't useful. So we asked them to do some um human resource tasks and to try and work out some answers when we knew, by the way, we designed it, there was no answer. And we got them to do that for as long as they could. Um, then we got them to watch various videos. Some were um, made, designed to make you happy, like, you know, he's watching videos of beaches and, and dolphins, some which were um, just nothing videos. So he'd watch a video about, you know, coffee making or something like that. And then we got some to watch videos with Mr. Bean or other funny videos like America's Funniest Home Video. And what we found was the groups who were able to, uh, who were watching the funny videos, they actually lasted a lot longer at the, at the jobs um, after they watched the videos. And the quality of the work that they did was as good, if not better, than those who watched, um, you know, the, the nothing video or those who watched the happy videos. Do you think that it's giving us a brain break? I most definitely think it's giving you a brain break. Um, and it's helpful because it gives you the break. The, the funniness of it all um, increases your mood or it makes it better. Um, and also in some cases, it can actually help you feel like you've got a little bit more control over the situation and that can help you with your work as well. Now, you've also studied the relationship between humour and aggression or mm. power at work. Mm. Well, what have you found there? Yeah, so what we were looking at was whether humour can help you when, you know, you are the, the target of some sort of aggression. Um, and to be clear, we're not talking about um, serious violence or, um, you know, sexual assault or anything in, in that sort of category. We're talking about more of the microaggressions which occur 
every day, um, often because the person who's maybe saying something aggressive towards you, maybe they've just had a bad day. So they're not they're not a bully necessarily. They're just, you know, having a bad day and, and maybe saying something to you in a, a rude way or a particularly aggressive way. And what we found is if you're able to find humor um, in that incident or not too long after that incident, that's going to help you reduce your stress as well. Um, and in one respect, it's because as I, as I sort of alluded to before, when you are able to find humor in things, you in your mind, you take back control over the situation. And that's really important because when you're the target of aggression, it makes you feel bad because normally you feel like you have no control. You're, you're the victim. And so I, humor in one aspect allows you to sort of, in your mind anyway, take back a little bit of power. Thanks, David. No problems. Thank you. Dr. David Cheng is from the Research School of Management at ANU. Thanks for your company. And if you haven't already, please subscribe. That way you'll never miss a show. Actually, I would love to know how and where and when you listen to us. Email us on thisworkinglife at abc.net.au. This Working Life is produced by Maria Tickle, who kicked off her portfolio career by producing a series called The Good Divorce on Life Matters, which you can also podcast. I'm hoping these extra streams don't lead you to another series on burnout though, Maria. I'm Lisa Leong, and until next week, keep working. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.